Hello, I'm Stephen Cole, and welcome to the Answers Project podcast from CGTN Europe, where we try and find answers, or at least make sense of, some of the trickiest questions facing us in an increasingly complicated world. We've got access to some of the best brains on the planet to see if they can help shed light on some of the most pressing social, ethical, scientific, geopolitical and philosophical quandaries. And I'm joined by Mari Beveridge, who's going to help me unravel this week's question. So Mari, what are we asking this week? Today, Stephen, we are looking at whether or not we should have a global currency. Woo, hold on right there. We're both British. We couldn't even cope with the euro, let alone a global currency. Not that we wanted to cope with the euro. <laughs> well, we can get into that in a minute. It, it's true. The Brits and the Danes didn't want a regional currency. But let's not get bogged down with Europe quite yet. Would a global currency work? That's the question. Let's start with reasons why it could. Well, let me think. We, um, we, we wouldn't have to change money when we go abroad. Um, it might make online shopping a bit easier. I mean, these are pretty trivial sort of reasons, but we could compare prices around the world and find the best deals and compare salaries with our international colleagues. You know, I love differences. Yeah, well, I mean, it was, it was nice that we could find some positives. Those were all very sensible reasons. And the disadvantages. I'm going to set a timer. <laughs> uh, well, hold on. Uh, let me just draw up a list. Uh, but top of my list is, I think, an important economic reason, and that's a lack of economic flexibility. One size doesn't fit all, as witnessed by the euro. And I suppose a lot of people who work in foreign exchanges would lose their jobs. I, I can't think of much else, but... Uh, as you know and very well aware of, I'm not an economist. Surely if a global currency was a good idea for all, we'd have got one by now. Well, you'd think. Uh, but of course, like everything we discuss on our podcast, Stephen, it's never as simple as it looks. And we're going to try and find out why. Uh, a good place to start um, with someone who can explain the basics. My name is Michael Roberts, author and economist, author of several books on the world economy, and I uh, used to work in the City of London and other financial institutions for over 30 or 40 years, different banks and financial institutions. So Michael is someone who has spent a lot of time thinking about the global economy, and he's very much a fan of some kind of international currency. I think it would be a fantastic advantage if we have a global currency, because it would mean that wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you will know that the currency you've got can be applied, you can buy, sell, move your money around in exactly the same currency. Just imagine all exchange risk would be removed. Indeed, it sounds great. Ready for the but? There's always a but. But if you think about it, an international currency requires a high degree of international cooperation and harmonisation by all the major economies around the world. It needs much more than just a currency. It needs the backing of gradually moving to an equalisation of uh, productivity around incomes around the world, the end of inequality of incomes and wealth around the world. Can you imagine how difficult that is at the moment to achieve? So the idea of achieving a global currency which is effective and which everybody would support, include not just the government, but also people, is a long way away away. So did you get that? There was a lot to take in there, but he's basically saying that he can see big advantages to having a global currency. Yeah, but he also said for it, for it to work, you'd have to remove all the imbalances between countries. You have to get governments to agree. They can't even agree internally, let alone externally, and let alone globally. 
And he, would, he was talking about ending inequality of incomes and wealth. Not going to happen, Murray. Come on, Stephen. Open your mind a bit. Maybe we need to just look at this in a bit more detail. Michael told us that there is, in fact, a global financial asset that's sort of like a currency, one that most of us have never heard of. Though, of course, I can't make assumptions about your well-educated self, Stephen. But I certainly hadn't heard of it. It's called the SDR. Have you heard oh, of this? Well, of, of course I have. I'm very well-educated, <laughs> as you said yourself, Murray. <laughs> SDR, sovereign dollar ruble or renminbi? Well, very, very good guesses. <laughs> a for effort. Um, the SDR actually stands for Special Drawing Rights. And um, before I get into that, we need a little bit of history. Here's our friend Michael Roberts again with a potted history of money in the last 150 years or so. In the 19th century and up to the middle of the 20th century, there was a global currency. It was gold. It was a commodity currency. It was a physical currency. Central banks and governments held reserves of gold. People even traded in gold. And that was seen as a common currency acceptable to all nations around the world. So the more gold you had, in a way, uh, apparently the more secure your economy and your, and your national currency, insofar as it related to the gold standard, uh, was secure as well. Oh, I just wish that uh, Gordon Brown had been listening to him. Uh, more secure your economy, Gordon. So why did you sell off all the gold at the worst possible rate? Uh, but <laughs> political points scoring apart, everyone was quite happy using gold as a global currency. So why did we stop using it? Well, it all started getting very shaky during the First World War. It just didn't give countries enough flexibility to keep their economies going in, in times of crisis if they needed to borrow a lot. By 1931, the UK had ditched the gold standard and the US followed in 1933 after all the upheaval of the Wall Street crash. Yeah, I, I do remember reading a lot uh, during my economics lessons and the controversy about uh, ditching the gold standard. I suppose you always had the problem too, if somebody found a whole new cache of gold somewhere, that could really impact the global economy. Yeah, indeed. And uh, after the Second World War, the World Bank and International Monetary Fund were set up to try and give a bit of stability and, and stop the boom and bust. They came up with something called SDRs, Special Drawing Rights, which I mentioned earlier. The IMF was set up to provide a liquidity support for countries around the world, particularly the poorer countries, so that if they did get into difficulties, they could go to the IMF and get emergency funding or credit from the IMF rather than from elsewhere at reasonable rates subject to certain conditions. Now, the IMF found that it, the only way it could really provide sufficient backing for that liquidity that it was providing for countries was to launch a uh, a special drawing right, an international currency, with the agreement of the leading members of the IMF, so that they had a liquidity base uh, to their activities. It's still quite small, only about a trillion dollars, because it's in the end measured in dollars. Recently, there was, in, in the current crisis, there was talk about doubling that, so that the IMF has got more funds to lend to people without having to go back to uh, members to ask for more funds, which is always a difficulty. But so far, nobody has agreed to that because it would mean an increase in the amount of liabilities that each national government has got to take for the IMS lending. So at the moment, the SDR remains a necessary thing the IMF needed to provide liquidity and backing for itself, but still a very limited base for international currency movements. 
So you could say it's a bit like a global currency. When countries get into difficulty, they can go to the IMF and get some international cash to help them out. The value of the SDR is backed up by a basket of five different international currencies, which get reviewed every five years. The US dollar, the British pound, the euro, the Japanese yen, and the Chinese renminbi or RMB or yuan. But it's not really a global currency as we know it, is it, Murray? I mean, I couldn't buy goods over the internet with an SDR. I mean, no one perhaps uh, accepting economists, have ever heard of it. Yeah, you're right. I mean, according to the IMF, it's a potential claim on the freely usable currencies of IMF members. Uh, SDRs can be exchanged for other currencies. It hasn't really got the sex appeal of cryptocurrencies or all these other new digital currencies we keep hearing about, things that we're told are going to rock the world and government control of money and uh, bring down the banks. And at the end of the financial system as we know it. And don't forget, Mari, you can't buy milk with cryptocurrency. You can't buy milk with cryptocurrency yet. And besides, hang on a second, Stephen, before you get carried away talking Armageddon, we need to understand a bit more about what a currency actually does to decide if we think it's a good idea to have a global one. Let me introduce you to someone else who knows a lot about money. Hello, my name is Rebecca Christie. I am a visiting fellow with the Bruegel Think Tank in Belgium. Rebecca used to work as a journalist for the FT, Bloomberg, the Wall Street Journal, among a couple of others. Uh, she spent her whole career thinking about monetary policy and debt. And the first thing she needs us to understand is what we mean when we're talking about something called a global reserve currency. When we're talking about a global reserve currency, we're really talking about the type of monetary asset that people around the world like to have on their books, whether or not that's the currency that they use in their day-to-day -day transactions. Money is a means of payment, it is a store of value, and it's also this sort of financial reference point for people working in a global context. Okay, that seems very understandable, and I think I'd be right in saying the global reserve currency uh, is the US dollar because as the slogan used to go, everybody loves a greenback, right? Yeah, you're right. And, and the US dollar has been the global reserve currency for a very long time. Most central banks around the world are very happy to hold dollars because they can exchange them easily and can hang on to them in case they need them for a rainy day. And that's the key uh, about any currency, isn't it? It's whether or not you can use it widely and uh, if you can trust it. Exactly. It's all about trust. A cash note is just a piece of paper, or increasingly these days, polymer. Money might be a couple of nickel or copper coins, but we all trust that it's worth something, that it's backed up by something real, reliable, something that has value. In God we trust. That's the motto on the US one cent coin, 10 cent coin too. It's the US motto as well. Money is about trust. Trust that we're going to pay our debts. I promise to pay the bearer on demand. That message is on all UK pound notes. But anyway, back to dollars. What's so good, so safe about the US dollar? Here's Rebecca Christie. The dollar is known as the world's reserve currency because you can use it almost anywhere as an exchange medium. You know, it's something that's, that's recognized. It's not like if you show up with a dollar in a part of the world, people will say, dollars, never heard of it. And that's something where people have a lot of confidence that if they have a treasury bond, they can keep it as long as they need and they can sell it absolutely anytime they want. And it's that level of confidence that really makes a reserve currency tick. 
And presumably the dollar has been the world's favoured global reserve currency because it was backed by the world's biggest economy, a superpower, which wasn't, isn't going to collapse anytime soon. The US Federal Reserve, as safe as the Bank of England. Uh, but we're, we're living in changing times, Stephen. We've got cryptocurrencies, euros, Russia and China having problems with, with the US, uh, Facebook thinking about setting up their own currency, Libra. They could all be rivals to the dollar as a global currency. Uh, even Mark Carney, before he left his job as the governor of the Bank of England, talked about ditching the dollar. So why would we want to do that? It's been working very well, as far as I'm concerned, as the global reserve currency. It's time to pull in the economic big guns. You've heard of BRIC, BRIC, right? Well, Lord O'Neill is the man who coined that term. He's as fine an economist as we're going to find. I'm Jim O'Neill. I'm currently chair of Chatham House, the international think tank. I was, some years ago, a commercial secretary to the Treasury for the UK government. And for far too long in my life, I was initially the chief economist and then the chair of asset management for the one and only Goldman Sachs. And uh, as you so rightly said, uh, he identified BRIC. And that was, what, almost 20 years ago, to 2001, he identified Brazil, Russia, India and China as the world's greatest emerging economies. And he was right until, well, he was half right, uh, until Brazil and Russia got into difficulties. You're right. I mean, he's got quite the CV, Jim O'Neill. Um, and I asked him if he thought the dollar was going to be replaced anytime soon with another global currency. You can't be the world's dominant currency to the degree in which the dollar is today if you don't have the same degree of domination of the world economy. And slowly but surely, the, the relative size of the US economy is declining, partly because of the rise of China in particular, but also because of the rise of India and some other countries. So that means at some point in the future, the dollar's role will be less than it is today. Second thing, which is where the, the complication is particularly big, is one of the reasons why the dollar's persisted in being so dominant for so long is other potential alternatives, uh, notably the euro or before that the Deutsche Mark and today to some degree the Chinese RMB and at times uh, the Japanese yen, their, their governments and, and policymakers have been reluctant to allow their currencies to be so widely used in the way that the dollar is because there is a consequence that sometimes might not be good either. And that needs to change in order for the dollar's role to be usurped or competed with, at least, by any traditional currency. And then the third thing, of course, is in this digital era, uh, there may be whole new forms of international medium of exchange other than traditional currencies, and they're going to play their own role as well. So whole new mediums of exchange. Now, that is complicated, and it's very difficult to sort of get my head around all the cryptocurrency stuff we have out there, the bitcoins. You mentioned Libra, possibility of Libra, Litecoins, Ethereums, Trons, Tether, Polkadot. There are many of them, and seemingly more by the month. Surely none of them are going to become truly global currencies because they're not backed up by anything solid, anything real, any central banks or governments. I mean, there is just so much to say about cryptocurrency, Stephen. I, I don't want to even get into blockchains and how they work. I feel like it needs a, a podcast of its own. But I'd argue that they definitely answer the global part of our question, but perhaps just not the sort of currency bit. Rebecca Christie doesn't think they could ever replace what we have already. 
currencies backed up by central banks and governments. One of the gifts of the cryptocurrency movement is it has shown us that a currency does not work unless you have a central bank standing behind it. And one of the things we know about central banking is that central banking is at its heart tied to other forms of political government. So unless we had a global central bank, which we would not have because we do not have a global government and a global country, but without a central bank that can stand behind it, you can't really have a currency. All of the other currency innovations that we hear about and finding ways to have currencies that can, can cross borders more easily or with fewer fees, all of these things end up being grafted on to the existing system of central banks around the world because that's, that's where the credibility lies. To be a serious grown-up currency, you have to have a central bank standing behind you that people can believe in, that people can trust has its own reserves and its own deep pockets and its own relationship with the government that it's connected to, uh, that can make sure that a currency doesn't just collapse under stress. But a lot of people have been buying cryptocurrencies, especially in 2020, where everything seemed to go crazy. <laughs> They've also been buying gold, which people always do in times of crisis. Uh, and the dollar has been going down. That, that's right, isn't it? Yes. Well, Lord O'Neill told me that there's one thing he can guarantee in the decades he's been working in the financial markets, um, that the value of cryptocurrencies, dollars, euros, any currency or commodity will go up and will go down. That's just the way it goes. You know, what happens to Bitcoin in any one month is remarkably volatile and it certainly won't be at the price of where it is the day of this interview in another month, never mind in another year. Markets move and the dollar has gone down this year. Gold had gone up, but actually in the past month, gold has fallen sharply. And the one thing I guarantee for your audience is that financial markets, particularly international currencies and things that trade closely related to them, are going to continue to move around in value. Have we entered a, a long-term decline in the value of the dollar? I'm not entirely sure about that. I do think the dollar will weaken in 2021 and other currencies will rise, probably including the RMB and maybe some of the cryptocurrencies. But if the US economy starts to recover dramatically and other parts of the world falter, uh, then the dollar will at some point probably recover. Uh, and one should never confuse cyclical performance of a currency with the role it plays in the international monetary system, because they're often very different things. Uh, I've been following the pound-euro value, and it hasn't changed uh, a, a bit over the last nine months, uh, certainly not even you know, during COVID, which is interesting. Mm. Um, but uh, it'll be interesting also to see whether that changes when Britain leaves in 2021. But he's certainly not writing off the dollar, which was clear, and he's not naming a successor, which is interesting. Or, or a real contender yet. Um, in recent years, of course, we've had a currency which replaced the currencies in 19 different countries, uh, the euro. I'm not a fan, as you know, because of the variations within the eurozone. But it's interesting that um, uh, the euro can tell us anything about how a global currency might or might not work. 
Well, uh, of the 28, now 27, members of the EU, the UK and Denmark were legally exempt from ever joining the euro because they really didn't want to. Uh, the Swedes have put off joining. And in fact, there are nine members which haven't adopted it at all yet. Yeah, and that's all for various reasons. But they are all obliged to. They have to. That was the deal at Maastricht in 1992. All member states, barring Denmark, will have to join the euro once they meet certain criteria. I mean, the euro is over 20 years old now, and many will tell you it's been a big success. Uh, perhaps not you, but, but many, <laughs> despite a few bumps along the way. Uh, Rebecca Christie, based in Brussels, has watched its ups and downs very carefully. The euro was a very brave and hopeful act. It was a number of countries deciding to band together and link their monetary policy in hopes of creating a more stable and closely bound economy. One thing that you hear a lot in the EU is you hear talk about ever closer union. And the euro it was a huge step in that direction. And the euro area, as it has grown and included more countries, has been a real sign of hope that Europe can overcome the, the fragmentation that at its worst led to world wars and that at its more humdrum day-to-day -day has led to a lot of suspicion and barriers among countries working together, you know, as the political processes want to do. And I don't think the euro has helped uh, achieve any of that. In an ideal world, a shared European country will keep the peace, maybe. I doubt it very much. A global currency, though, might, in theory, bring global peace. That might be a contribution. Yeah, I mean, it's a nice thought, but I'm not sure either. I, I, if you think about what happened during the euro crisis, uh, the problem with having a currency that covers a large area with very different economies and needs means that it's just very difficult to make economic adjustments when times are difficult. Michael Roberts says that was always going to be a problem if you're using one currency over a really large area. The German mark was replaced with the euro, which was actually weaker than the German mark, which meant that German goods and services could be exported to the rest of the European Union at, at a fairly cheap rate relative to what they were charging before in mark terms. Uh, so that benefited them. Also, the opening up of the Eastern Europe enabled Germany to move a lot of its industrial and other uh, manufacturing uh, entities into Eastern Europe, where it could take advantage of lower wage rates and lower costs, and therefore was able to expand its industry. That wasn't an, the advantage that was available to the countries like Italy or Spain or Portugal or Greece in particular. And so they've not really been able to take advantage of that. As a result, the imbalances have risen. Um, and we're seeing now in the current COVID pandemic slump a similar problem, which has forced uh, the European Union to come up with a new fund, a new attempt to try and, as it were, square the, uh, the circle of difference between the South and North by, for the first time, providing quite sizable amounts of fiscal uh, support to the countries of the southern part of Europe with less conditions that existed during the European debt crisis. The conditions being so harsh then, of course, that it led to a major crisis in Greece, which nearly brought uh, a breakup of Greece at the time. Yeah, and uh, Greece had to sell most of their national assets to Germany. 
to pay for the bailout, certainly all their sort of power and, and, and gas installations. And they were bought by um, a, a German bank, which is interesting. But the man who, who helped form the euro, he, he in fact formed the European Central Bank, Mr. Utmar Issin. He's basically saying now the whole thing is a pack of cards. And the only way the euro is surviving is because they're printing trillions and trillions of extra euros. What happens when they stop printing those? I don't know. I mean, a lot of economists think there is an optimal currency area, that if you were to try and enforce a global currency, there just wouldn't be enough flexibility to change monetary policy in different areas with different needs. And here's Rebecca Christie again. Joining under a single central bank only gets you so far if that central bank is limited in what it can do to support the individual economies that work together. If those economies don't also agree that they will support each other financially, then you see that the system is not as equally balanced as it could be. So that's where we are now. We see in the COVID crisis, the Euro area countries working much closer together. We see the European Central Bank really stepping up and doing whatever it takes to keep the financial system steady while countries figure out their fiscal response. And we see countries more willing to back each other up fiscally than they were during the Euro crisis, which was perceived, you can make the case somewhat unfairly, that that was a case of people really managing individually and trying to get the group on the hook for individual problems. Again, you can make a case that that's not what happened, but that was the way it was perceived. It was perceived during the Euro crisis that countries that had screwed up their finances wanted the other countries to bail them out. Now we have a situation where the threat is coming from outside and the countries are really realizing that even if they disagree with how other governments are making their decisions, they need to back each other up financially because it's the only way to keep everybody strong. And that'll continue for as long as Germany agrees to pay for the countries uh, in Southern Europe. Uh, and it all does sound great, but it wasn't enough to persuade skeptical Brits or Danes to sign up. And in many of the member states, it has been a huge issue. I think if it can't work in Europe, it can't work for the entire world. And the vested interests have too much to lose to change the system. So it's a no to global currency for now, but it's something I'd like to come back to another time if we're permitted a season two. In the meantime, we're hoping you, our audience, will get in touch to tell us what you think about a global currency or indeed cryptocurrencies. If you've got a burning question you would like to answer, we'd love to hear that too. Find us on CGTN Europe's Facebook page or Twitter page. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or Spotify. For the moment, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.